The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. If you want your readers to connect with your writing, you need to immerse them deeply into the mind of your characters. Your readers need to hear, see, and experience everything that your character experiences. But how do you do this? The answer is deep point of view. And that's the episode. No, I'm kidding. The real question is, what is deep point of view and how can you use this technique to make your storytelling better? This helps if you're writing nonfiction and you're working in narrative elements, but it is transformative if you are writing fiction. And we have a great guest to help us with this topic today. She is a best-selling author of warm-hearted historical romance. She was voted number one reader's favorite Christian romance author in 2019 by the Family Fiction Magazine, and she is a multiple award-winning author and a firm believer in the power of happy endings. Karen Wittemeyer, welcome to the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you, Thomas. I'm so excited to be here. So what are the different types of point of view? I I teased deep point of view, but I know there's other kinds of point of view out there. So let's walk through those first. So your basic point of view is going to be first person. Uh, If you are writing as the the main character, and that is the I and me and that type of of point of view. Um, Third person is what I typically write with. Uh, Romance a lot of times will feature two points of view. We'll have a hero and a heroine. And so writing in third person allows you to take off a hat and put on a different hat to slip into different characters. So third person allows you to do that and is typically with the he, she, that type of point of view. You do occasionally run across an omniscient point of view told from like a narrator's point of view. That is less common, um, especially in genre fiction, um, but that is also an option. Second person you don't see very often told with you uh, point of view, especially in fiction, that's not very common. It is common, though, in daddy uh, story time stories. <laughs> so, yes. Um, in real life storytelling, which I find myself doing more and more as my toddlers get older, you do use uh, that second person quite a bit. I, I found telling my kids stories of their own life uh, is very effective. And oh, sure. Teaching certain elements that they <laughs> remind them that they've learned lessons the hard way and they don't have to learn that lesson the hard way. Again, and there is one trick if for first person uh, that Mark Twain does really well. If you want to jump into somebody else's head, just have that person tell your first person um, point of view character a story. And Mark Twain sometimes will go three levels deep where he'll have a second person telling the first person a story. And then in that story, someone will read a letter from a third person uh, and he'll have them in different voices. But it's always in first person. I, I don't know if Mark Twain ever wrote in anything other than first person point of view. So if you want to see first person done well, uh, look at Mark Twain. But what we're talking about with deep point of view is kind of combining that um, the closeness of first person with the kind of distance of third person. So how does that work with deep point of view? 
So uh, the biggest thing that you can do with deep point of view is make it feel like first person while still having the flexibility of third person. So the way this happens, we'll, we'll go through several different, um, tips and tricks to help you. But the main thing is you want your narrative to sound like the character. So you don't want it to be the author is describing what's happening. And then, oh, here's some dialogue from the characters. You want the whole point of view of your narrative to reflect the character that uh, is the point of view character for that scene, because that helps your reader really get immersed into the scene, into the head of your character. They hear the thoughts, they feel the emotions, they're experiencing the story firsthand instead of just having it told to them. That's right. And you're exploring those senses too. Uh, I I found with my daddy storytelling time that when I get into the other senses of what something smells like, I really get the attention of the toddlers. They're very curious about what (laughs) something smells like, which is actually a real challenge for me from a storytelling perspective, because I don't have a sense of smell, little known fact. (laughs) Oh, wow. uh, When when I suspected I got COVID, everyone's like, well, can you smell anything? I'm like, no. Can you taste? No. But I couldn't do that before either. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe recovering from COVID will give it to me back. It did not. Oh, uh, sad. Yeah. So so walk us through some of those other. So you're talking about getting really close. Could you give us an example of what that would look like? So we want to, um, one of the rules is to keep the point of view pure for each scene that you're starting with. So there are a lot of books out there um, that have a lot of head hopping going on. And a lot of early writers will say, well, so-and-so, you know, multi-published author head hops all the time. And that's true. And they can find ways to still do that effectively. But I would argue that they're not actually using deep point of view because deep point of view is a way to get so deep into that character that nothing is going to jar you out. So I keep it pure for each scene, only one point of view character. Um, also, it's your job as the author to really get to know your characters. Um, you have to be able to know who they are before you can convince your reader of who they are. And so you want to do this in several different ways. You could, you could try journaling as that character. Um, you might write, um, a scene in first person from your character's point of view as first person and then go back and change it into third person to see if that changes the level of intimacy that you've created. There's other little tricks like um, try not to call the character by their name too often. We obviously need to do this from time to time because you have to designate who is speaking and who's doing what in a particular scene, especially if there's a lot of characters involved. But when you think of most normal people, you know, not the uh, super athletes who talk about themselves in the third person, most people do not think of themselves in the third person. They think of themselves just, I'm just me. And so um, when you eliminate an excessive use of the character name, that kind of helps just kind of allows the, the reader to just get into the groove of the story. I am this character. I'm living vicariously through this character. And the name doesn't jar them out of that. Hey, you're talking about writing uh, the scene from the first person point of view. That's actually a really common screenwriting technique. And when screenwriters are trying to make sure that each character's motivation makes sense and is consistent with that character, they'll write the scene four or five different times from each character's point of view, even though it'll never end up in the screenplay, just to kind of check it to make sure that it works. Because in screenwriting, you have an actual actor who's thinking the thoughts of the character and has to put it into their performance. And if you don't do that, then the actor will do it. 
and maybe we'll interpret it the wrong way and <laughs> you lose a little bit a little bit of control not that screenwriters have a lot of control because by the time <laughs> the actors and the directors and the editors get a hold of it it's a totally different film but one way to maintain that control as a writer is to think through all of those questions and it may off only lead to minor tweaks but it helps the characters be uh, more consistent characters in that scene and more compelling characters because it forces you to think, think through why would he put the gun on the mantelpiece? Like he has to have a reason. He's not going to just do it because I need him to. I need the gun on the mantelpiece for the next scene. He has to have his own motivation for doing it. Right, and I like that analogy of of screenwriting because an actor brings their own um, motivations, their own influence, their own you know backstory even to the role that they are playing. And I think the same can be said for your character, even though you as the author are in control of it. Um, you're still you want the narrative to reflect your um, character's personality, their backstory, th- how they usually speak. A lot of times I will throw in sentence fragments and stuff like that into my male POV character's um, narrative because it, it's how they would speak. And so a lot of times we speak the way we think. And so incorporating those same kind of techniques into the actual narrative really helps immerse the reader more deeply into that character's scene because you're really feeling like you're experiencing the scene as the character is. So what are some more techniques for zooming in that lens and getting uh, deeper into the character's mind? One that I um, still work on as I write and I have to be reminded of is to try to get rid of those headwords. And what I mean by headwords is these terms that introduce what's coming. So using phrases like he thought, she knew, he wondered, she noticed those kind of things, they're introducing the action that's going to take place or the observation that's going to take place. And just work on taking those out and instead just have the action take place or have the thought be a direct thought instead of she wondered if he was going to be late. Instead, have a direct thought of where was he? You know, that that kind of thing, you know, so that it, it has more personality. It's more direct. You feel like you're experiencing it as the reader. Because that adds tension to the storytelling. When you put that kind of tele, um, telegraphing into the sentence, it's like a micro-spoiler. It's like a spoiler in one sentence for what's going to be in the next sentence, which relieves attention. And one really easy trick, if you're wanting to remove that from your writing, is those certain words that tend to be your telegraph words. Um, turn on track changes in your manuscript. And then turn on, use find and replace, and replace that word with itself. So you type in the word wondered, and you replace the word with wondered. You're like, what does that do? Well, it deletes the word wondered and adds it right back in. But it will, if you have track changes turned on, it will highlight that word in Microsoft Word. And then you just go through every one of them and make them each give a reason for the hope that lies within them. (laughs) (laughs) And if they can't justify themselves in the sentence, right? Obviously, some of them are important, but a lot of them you could probably cut. It's a really easy editing pass that you can do uh, on your own during one of your editing runs that can really quickly help those jump out. But the real skill is knowing what those crutch words are, those telegraph words are, uh, which uh, sometimes takes uh, an editor's eye to be like, you realize that you've said this word a dozen times in the last two chapters. That's a great trick. Yes, I think that would be very helpful. And like you said, all of these are 
guidelines, you know, like the famous Pirates of the Caribbean. They're more like guidelines. There, nothing is hard and fast. There's always a reason to break a rule if it helps your story. But as we are working to perfect our craft, we need to make sure that we have a good reason for breaking that rule. We don't want to do it just because I'm a rule breaker and I'm going to do it this way because that's it's easy. One of the things about deep point of view is it's not going to make your writing easier it's going to make it harder. Uh, it's going to take a lot more time. Uh, it's going to take more space on the page a lot of times. And because of that, it it's kind of an emotional investment from the author as well. We have to pour ourselves into this and be willing to, to not just take the easy first thing that pops into my head, but go deeper. And different people write different ways. If you're somebody who, you know, I just need to get that first draft on the page, and then I go back and do my layering and, and my editing and all of that then adding deep point of view might be something that comes in an editing stage for you. For me, I am a very um, methodical perfectionist writer. So I write one really slow, careful draft. And because of that, I have to do this as I go. Otherwise, it won't get added in. And so there are times when I have to stop and just take several minutes to sit there and stare off into space and figure out, how should I say this in a way that really feels like it's coming from my character and not coming from me as the author or not coming from a telling point of view of just, well, this is the easiest way to write it. How can I really take the time to go deeper and add those other layers as I'm going through? Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that when an author is sitting, staring out the window, that doesn't mean they're not working. <laughs> Sometimes so it's the most important work they do as well, staring out the window because they're trying to solve some kind of problem that often will lead to a real breakthrough in their writing. So one of the things that I like to think about is what makes my character voice different. So as I'm writing in this deep point of view, if you look at, so I write Western uh, romance in historical time periods, but if you look at a, a cowboy and how he would think in a today, modern contemporary setting versus how a cowboy back in the 1880s would think and speak. They're going to be very different and they should sound different in your story. They shouldn't sound the same. The same is if you take like a single year, 1815, let's say, and you have a frontiersman in uh, America just starting, you know, as, as they're just starting out versus uh, the same year across the pond, you have a, an 1815 British nobleman. They're going to have very different points of view, very different life experiences. Um, and that's going to reflect in how your narrative and how your dialogue comes across. And so just taking some time to figure out who is my character, maybe even compared to other characters of the same time period or um, this, a similar character across different time periods might help you figure out exactly what makes that character unique. And their use of the English language is different. This is one advantage of writing in the real world as opposed to writing fantasy is that you know, oh, and a British aristocrat he would be using these kinds of words, right? There's the obvious he's going to say trousers instead of pants, but also when he gets angry, He's going to say different things when he gets angry than the kind of uh, insult that a cowboy might give. And if you're writing speculative fiction, I know a lot of uh, you write speculative fiction. This is a really great opportunity for world building. And this technique started off amongst uh, Mormon writers like Brandon Sanderson that wanted to avoid using uh, the offensive um, bad language and English. But they wanted their characters to swear. And so they started coming up with unique swear words for those characters and they found out that swearing is a really great insight into the world and into the character, right? What 
What gods do they swear by, <laughs> right? What is an insult for that person? What do they fear, right? Because often that works their, its way into uh, the language that we use. And so it allowed them to have their character swearing without swearing, but really helping them get to know, oh, this person, when they get angry, they say this. But this other person, when they get angry, they say something different. And it tells you a lot about um, them and their world. Absolutely. Um, education level is going to make a huge difference, um, not only in dialogue, but it should also be reflected in, in the narrative. Um, and that, that'll make a big difference as well as, um, regional, uh, you know, where the, where this character is from, uh, what kind of background they have with their occupation. They might use different terminology than someone of a different occupation. So all of those things come into play and should be used, uh, as a way to enrich, uh, the point of view character um, in the narrative. Now I have a question about that. Um, cause there's a trick that you can do in first person narration where you can have the first person narrator observing something and misinterpreting it where the reader knows the true interpretation and it creates this interesting dynamic. So for instance, in Huckleberry Finn, Huckleberry Finn comes across some con artists and we as the reader know this guy is not actually the Duke of Brigandia or whatever. But Huckleberry Finn does not, right? Like he is true, he is well and truly bamboozled by these con artists. And I don't remember if he ever finds out that they're con artists in the whole story. But we do as readers. And, and they're able, and uh, Twain's able to do that because he gets really close to the story and really close to that point of view. Can you pull off those kinds of tricks in third person? point of view or is the fact that it's in third person so it's still a narrator is that harder to do it might be a little harder but in a way um you have opportunities to do that if you have multiple point of view characters in your story so one person's reality may be very different from your other character's reality and so you can play off of that um, as well as you can still use some first person techniques within the third person because you can have that direct italicized thought where you are, are really having that first person moment we usually don't want to try to have those extended too long because you can make the same effect with a third person deep point of view. But sometimes having a sentence or two in that first person italicized um, text really allows you to have that. I know exactly what this character is thinking because it's it's spelled out for you. And so you can play off of what is real and what is perceived. Um, sometimes I think easier when you have multiple POV characters, because one person can can say, this is what I intended to have happen. And the other person is interpreting the intention completely different. So I think there is still room for that. Um, it just may be done in a different way. And those italicized thoughts, when you work those in, do you put those the thoughts themselves in first person? So if somebody's hanging on a cliff, they're like, am I going to die? Or is that how you phrase it? Yes. So really, the when in writing in deep point of view, the only time that you should use italics is when you are having a direct first person thought. So you're using I or me or that kind of thing. Um, otherwise, it's just deep point of view. And you can still use the third person, he, she, you know, that kind of language in there. But you don't have to italicize it because you're just doing it in that deep point of view. So I guess this may be like the div big difference between regular third person and deep point of view third person is regular third person usually just kind of it's um there's a term cinematic point of view right you're kind of picturing a camera lens there in the scene and you're seeing everything that the camera lens sees so the camera lens can see what's happening in the room but it can't see into people's minds whereas with deep point of view you can go into someone's minds and, and enter their internal world 
as well as showing kind of the camera view of the world. Right. It's it's a great way to add humor, to add personality, to add these misconceptions that you were talking about, because you get to they may not actually say what they're thinking, but you as the reader get to hear what they're thinking. And that adds a whole layer of complexity that wouldn't be there um, just in that cinematic point of view. Yeah. And just a, a few episodes ago, we talked about Dune. Uh, and at that time, I had not seen the movie. I'd only read the books. So Dune is an omniscient point of view. And we talked about, uh, I believe we talked about the best scene in the book is this dinner party where you know what everyone is thinking and there's all of this tension because what's being said and what's not being said are very different. And that scene got cut from the movie. And I was discussing it with some writers and we were like, they kind of had to cut that scene from the movie because if you don't know what people are thinking, if you don't know all of the plans within plans and the plots within plots, it's just a normal dinner party, which <laughs> is a very boring scene to film. It's the most intense scene. It's almost like a battle in the books, but there is no real good way to put that on the screen. So if you haven't read Dune, if you watched the movie and you enjoyed it, go read Dune. Realize that Dune, though, from a point of view perspective, is not following any of the rules that we're <laughs> laying out in this episode. Uh, so there's more than one way uh, to write a book. Uh, but I would say probably deep point of view is a little bit easier than, omnis- than truly omniscient head hopping in a scene. That's really hard to pull off well. It is. I agree. One of the other things that I would um, recommend as far as developing deep point of view is to look at um, how you portray emotion in a scene. So this is another one of those rules that um, sometimes is broken. Um, but we talked about trying to eliminate those head words. He, he thought she noticed those kind of things. The same thing can be true for naming emotions. We want the reader to experience the emotion without you telling us what the emotion is. So a deep point of view scene will be written in such a way that it evokes the emotion that you're trying to portray without telling you what the emotion is. So there's several ways to help do this. You can do it with um, visceral response. So what is the character physically feeling? Um, is their heart rate fluttering? Or, you know, do they feel sick to their stomach? Or do they have a headache? You know, is, is the pulse pounding in their neck? You know, all those different kinds of, of uh, visceral response clues that can tell you how they're, how they're feeling. Another is to, uh, to look for what they're what they're thinking. So being able to read their minds and being able to know what they're thinking, but don't just have them think, "Oh, I'm so jealous right now." You know, that that's not going to be very effective. <laughs> but you can have them think all kinds of catty things toward that other woman who's doing something with the man that you think is yours. Um and that's going to give a whole different level. It's going to bring that other level of personality. It's going to make it enjoyable for the reader. It's going to evoke the emotions that you're trying to have instead of just being told what those emotions are and it's a chance to give the backstory right he yelled at her and she's hearing his voice as if it's her father who yelled at her the whole time growing up and so even though this is the one time he's yelled at her in the whole story and maybe it's not even a big deal for her it's a big deal because it's got all of this context of her life story that's coloring that and you know it's crushing and he doesn't understand and right there's a lot that can happen in um uh, giving the context when you get into someone's head without having to have a whole chapter at the beginning of the book of the dad yelling at the little girl. Exactly. 
There's um, another trick that I use uh, a lot. I love analogies. I I love imagery and metaphors and and all of that. And if you can do it in such a way that reflects who your character is, it's going to add that other level of uh, that other level of deep point of view. Really dry. Uh, sorry, bringing bringing your character into the life of the reader. Um, so if you want to use imagery as a way to enhance the emotion of the scene, you can do that through analogies, you can do it through metaphor, you can do it through visual pictures, the scene, the setting that you have can play into the emotions of the scene. You know, there's a lot of times when you have, you know, something devastating has just happened. And of course, it's raining. <laughs> there's, you know, there's, there's tricks like that, that you can use. Obviously, you don't want to overdo cliched things. <laughs> but find a way to take what is cliche and comes to your mind first, and twist it and make it unique to your character. So in, instead of having butterflies flying in your stomach, I had one of my characters, um, you know, she was thinking about how and how things were built swelling inside her like a yeasty bread dough sitting on a warm windowsill, you know, that kind of thing, because that's something that she would be um, familiar with. And then she also talked about needing someone to punch her down and knead her back into shape because she didn't want this feeling to overwhelm her. So you can play with that and it kind of extend the analogy and make it something that's unique so that it feels fresh and, and unique to you, but also really enhances uh, the character that you're building. I love that. And that can be used again as a world building tool, right? Instead of having a paragraph explaining some tweak of your fantasy world, you can do that exact sort of thing where something that you understand in a scene, the character is interpreting it with a metaphor of some fantastic element of the world. And it helps you understand both the world better and the scene better. Uh, but you can also use it in romance. It's a great tool. Uh, analogies, metaphors, they really spice up your writing in some really good ways. Any genre. <laughs> Could you give us an example of a scene or sentence that's done kind of in the normal third person way and then what it would look like with a deep point of view? Sure. So we were just talking about um, how to evoke emotion instead of naming the emotion. One of the examples that I use um, when I'm teaching a course on deep point of view um, is to to show a sentence where it's just we're naming the emotion. The sentence itself is not bad. It's not horrible writing, but ways that we can make it deeper. So here's an example. We were uh, we're going to use jealousy as our example. Stephanie eyed her rival, jealousy burning within her as the woman's manicured hand stroked Jason's sleeve. Not a bad sentence. It, you know, it's a, it's a good sentence. Um, but instead of naming the emotion of jealousy, let's see if there's a way that we can deepen the point of view and make that more interesting and more of a um, experience for the reader instead of just information for the reader. So here's how, how we edited it. Stephanie eyed her rival, her throat constricting as she fought to keep a hostess smile from contorting into a snarl. How dare she show up tonight on Jason's arm, and with her talons sunk into his sleeve like some medieval warbird, where was a cat when you needed one? <laughs> I love that. So we've done we've done several things here, right, to enrich it and to make it feel. I mean, you have no doubt that this woman is jealous about what's going on, um, but we never actually mentioned jealousy in in the revised uh, version. So what we did was we added um, some visceral response. We have her throat constricting, right? We feel, you know, she's she's tightening up. She is not pleased with what's going on. So that was a visceral response that we added. 
So what, what we're doing here is we're demonstrating a technique. You've heard this phrase a million times on this podcast, and we haven't used it once yet on this episode, which is, I think, a perfect uh, metaphor for what we're talking about. But it's the principle of showing rather than telling, right? So we've been showing you show, and t- show don't tell rather than telling you <laughs> show don't tell. And there are many ways to show instead of tell, but deep point of view is a whole toolbox of ways to show rather than tell. So instead of telling she's jealous, you show all of these different evidences of jealousy so that the reader has fun kind of decoding the story where each sentence becomes a bit of a mystery as they are figuring things out and piecing it together and filling in the scene. It makes it much more fun to read for the reader. That is exactly right. That is that is what Deep Point of View does, is it really enhances the show part of, of your writing. Do you have any other examples for us? Yeah, let me just let me go back on and add a few things in on this one just to kind of demonstrate what we're adding here. So we added the the throat constricting the visceral response. We also added some additional action. So she's fighting to keep her hostess smile in place instead of letting it contort into a snarl. So we have that going on. And then we also added direct thought. How dare she show up tonight on Jason's arm? So that would be an italicized direct thought. And then we have um some personality. With her talons sunk into his sleeve like some medieval warbird, where was a cat when you needed one? You know, that adds a little humor, it adds a little snark, a little personality um, to your character. So it, it really, it's, it's slightly longer. We've, we now have several sentences instead of just one. Um, and so it takes a little more effort to do this, but it really enriches the scene and helps to evoke the emotion instead of just telling us what the character is feeling. And I would say if you're using this technique throughout, it doesn't actually make your story longer. It makes it shorter because while that's more sentences, it's conveying a lot more information and it's doing the heavy lifting, right? Like if you wanted to use that old technique for each one of those pieces of information that they're getting, uh, it would take more words overall. So in the in a short example like this, I think it makes it longer, but it makes it feel a lot tighter in over a whole book. I don't know if you've, if you've seen this in an edit. Uh, but my, I would suspect it's actually shorter overall. It can be. I do sometimes get questions um, from writers who ask, well, I've been told by editors that I, I spend, you know, too much time in, in interior monologues. And this just sounds like it's all interior monologue. You know, how do I find that balance? And that is a balance because you don't want to spend the whole story inside your character's head. Action has to happen. The story always has to be moving forward. You need to keep pacing in mind. So as we look at this as ways to expand um, the deep point of view in the narrative, keep that in mind that you don't want to sacrifice pacing of your story to spend more time in your character's head. It all has to be balanced. So you, you add a little bit here, you add a little bit there. Sometimes you may have to trim some because it's it's hurting your pacing. So all of that kind of plays together. Yeah, how do you know when you've gone too deep? Right? Because I totally agree, you can get lost. It's kind of like Inception, right? You keep going levels deep until you know time slows and slows and slows until finally nothing's going on. Well, half the movie happens while somebody's falling off a bridge. Uh, so how do you know when you've gone down the rabbit hole too far? Sometimes it's just how many pages have you gone without any action or dialogue happening. That can be a clue. Um, also, I, I sometimes my critique partners or my editor will say, I think you've spent a little too long in this character's head. That's a big clue. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes it takes someone a little bit removed from the story um, to be able to point that out. Um, but as you go and you get 
more of a feel for it yourself, I think you kind of start to have a natural sense of realizing when I'm spending too long uh, in the character's head or not having enough action happening. And these are little snippets that you can put in between dialogue, too. It doesn't have to just be these long paragraphs of introspection. I think these are most effective when they're interspersed in the middle of the action and the dialogue um, as a way to uh, enrich the scene and the character's point of view. Yeah, I would almost think of deep point of view as like the gravy that you put on top of the steak and the potatoes. The steak and the potatoes is the character in the in the plot, right? Like ultimately, that's where the substance of the story is coming from. Good deep point of view does not replace the need for good characters or a strong plot, but it does add a lot of flavor. But you can put too much gravy right? in a meal of nothing but gravy <laughs> uh, is a very frustrating meal because it leaves you very thirsty and you're still hungry at the end. True. And and deep point of view is really so tied to character that if you don't have well-developed characters, you really can't um, establish deep point of view because those those two are so tied together. So I see I see deep point of view being so tied to the character that it, I almost see it as, OK, that's that kind of is part of characterization. And then plot is is something separate, but they, they have to blend together. Otherwise, you're not going to have a harmonious story. Yeah, so how do you work that with, uh, you have your deep point of view characters and then you have your side characters or your non-point of view characters. Maybe a major character, but you never get inside their head. How do you um, balance keeping it from all being, that you have one glorious, interesting character and then all these boring characters around them, right? Like, you have, they have to have uh, a hard surface to push off of. So how do you use deep point of view to develop those non-point of view characters? Well, a lot of times, if you know, if they're friends, if they're enemies, if they, you know, the the character is going to have um, strong opinions or strong emotions tied to who that character is, depending on the relationship. Um, sometimes you can get some really great stuff going on with with your villains um, with that because it has a chance for the character to really play off of that, and you get to hear what the character is thinking, even if they're not willing to say it aloud. So that plays into it. Also, you see how they react. With when the other when the other character is in the room, so to speak, or in the scene, you know, are they excited to see that person? Are they um, dreading having a conversation? Are they afraid because it's the villain? You know, what's going on? So you get to experience how they are reacting to that person. But then that that other secondary character has to be developed through their dialogue, through um, their actions, how they react, all those kind of things. So they do need to feel like they're not just cardboard throwaway characters. They need to be three. D- three-dimensional characters as well, um, even if you don't get a chance to get inside their head. And just because you can go inside someone's head doesn't mean you can't still pay attention to the camera, right? Like the camera has to capture their behavior. It's got to capture their dialogue. I feel like you're exactly right. Dialogue is a really great glimpse into somebody else's mind and their thinking. And if you're doing a good job with characterization of your side characters, their dialogue is going to be different. And that will give you, you know, like we were talking about earlier, right? You have a the cowboy and the uh, English lord talking to each other. The dialogue is going to be really different. And even if you're only in the head of the cowboy, you're still learning a lot about that English lord. And he has plenty of opportunity to become an interesting character. You could also play off of, of the body language cues as well, because I, it's fun to have a conversation going where you're only in one person's head, but you can see 
this person may be saying something, but their body language is giving you different feelings. And so you now have doubt in your, can I really believe what they're telling me? You know, that, that was a strange gleam in his eye as he said that, you know, so they can play off of their body language, their attitude, their tone of voice, all of those things that can be a little tricky to portray in printed word. But if you, if you give enough clues, then the reader can experience that as well. So what are some mistakes that you see people making when they're trying to work or to write deep point of view where you're tracking with a story and you just go Ugh, inside when you read? So what are, what are the things that make you go? Ugh? One thing is is using the italics too much. Um, so thinking that they have to italicize deep point of view sections instead of just letting them flow. Um, that comes up because italics really, they jump off the page and so they're noticeable. And sometimes that's really great if you're trying to emphasize something or having a, a quick uh, direct thought. Um, those can be very powerful that way. But if you have just like paragraphs of italic, italicized text, it's not very pleasant for the reader. It can be kind of tiring uh, for them. So that's one thing to watch for. Um, the other, like we mentioned, is spending too much time with interior monologue. Uh, we, we need the action. We need the pacing. We need the story to be moving forward. So even if they're having great epiphanies, you might have to trim that epiphany so that it has more punch instead of letting it just draw out for a really long time. Yeah. In some audiobooks. The internal monologue is played with this really high reverb effect to help you as the listener know what's being said and what's being thought. And that is only good in really small doses. <laughs> some, some narrators are able to make it clear just in their performance when they're thinking and when what they're saying. But yeah, to have a whole paragraph with that reverb echoey effect. It's really grating uh, to the ear. So remember people like me who only listen to audiobooks when you're writing that internal <laughs> monologue and don't cover the plate with gravy. It's not a soup. <laughs> Use it sparingly and strategically, uh, not for every single problem. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, and something else that can be overused um, when people are trying to do deep point of view and they're trying to do these analogies and things like that is cliches will creep in. So, you know, we talked about the butterflies in the stomach versus, you know, this yeasty bread dough rising, you know, those kind of things. Um, I had a, a book that I wrote uh, a while back, um, My Ladies in Harper Station series, No Other Will Do. And I ended up using, uh, in fairly close succession, two um, analogies that had to do with food. One was from the heroine's point of view, and one was from the hero's point of view. And they were so different because they're coming from two different people, two different life experiences. And I think um, I'm going to read those to you just because I think they might reflect what you're looking for as you're building analogies that really um, speak to who your character is. So the first, um, the first one, well, actually, I've already mentioned the first one, uh, was Emma with her anticipation of, of Malachi coming and she had that yeasty bread dough that was rising and, uh, wanting someone to pound her, pound it back down and knead her back into place. So she's a character who, you know, she's a female character in the 1800s. They bake their own bread. That's just part of their life. She, she's excited. She's giddy about it, but she also realizes 
I need to not get too carried away with this. I need to still be sensible and still be practical and all of that. And then from the hero's point of view, from Malachi's point of view, he's he's come on the scene to help her out, but he realizes in his opinion that he's not good enough for her, right? And so he has all this, you know, kind of doubt and reservations. And he's worried about what's going to happen when she doesn't need him anymore. And so this is how his analogy came across with, again, with food, but with a completely different perspective. And when she didn't need help anymore, Malachi tried to ignore the insidious thought as he basked in the light of Emma's grateful smile, but the prospect lingered in the air between them, tainting the sweetness of the moment like rotted beef in a savory stew. Now, Malachi was a character who grew up on the streets. He often was eating out of garbage cans. He would know what rotted beef tasted like. And he also is kind of using that comparison of her being the savory, the good, him being the rotted beef that was put into there. And so you're working at this at a lot of different angles, using an analogy that is true to the character, but also is more expansive, kind of bringing in that imagery that we talked about um, to express this emotion, this insecurity, this doubt that he has. Yeah, and it's risky to use food metaphors for two very different characters. But I, I would say of all the metaphor worlds, food's probably the safest because everybody's got to eat. <laughs> so true. And it's something that your character can relate to. That's important, too, to keep in mind. That's right. If your um, analogy is too esoteric, then it doesn't actually work because it doesn't bring a picture to mind. It's one of the interesting things about a lot of Jesus' parables. They were very easy to understand for his original audience because they were farmers. Whereas for a lot of people nowadays who are not a farmer, they've never grown a thing in their life. They have to have somebody explain to them how a farm works <laughs> to fully understand the parable. Uh, and so you need to know your audience, just like he knew his audience, and, and use metaphors that can uh, relate to those people. So true. And there's there's differences between writing something from a female point of view versus writing from a male point of view. There's going to be things that are just all characters are different and unique, but there's going to some general things of women tend to be a little more flowery in their language, a little more poetic. Men tend to be a little more just punch it to it like it is. Uh, we're going to keep it short and sweet, uh, maybe a little more raw. They're not so concerned about hurting people's feelings, you know, those kind of things. And so um, obviously every character is is going to have their own personality and it's not going to be a generic stereotype. Um, but some of those things do flavor how you're going to write from that person's perspective. And do you use sensitivity readers? Like, do you get men to read your male point of view scenes to make sure that this is tracking like a man reads this is like, yeah, this sounds like something a dude would say. <laughs> I actually don't. <laughs> But I um, I grew up with a brother and with lots of male friends, and I actually usually have more fun writing the male point of view than I do the female point of view. And also, you have to keep your readership in mind. So I write romance, which I do have male readers, but the majority of my readers are women. And so you, while you want the, the male point of view to be very true and authentic, um, you also want it to be the male point of view that your female readers want it to be. So... <laughs> You have a little a little leeway there, but it's it's always fun when I hear from my male readers about how much they enjoy my stories because um, it's it. I'm always a little unsure. You know, I, I write romance for women most of the time, but it's also a good good old fashioned western too. And so when I get feedback from male readers, that's very uh, reassuring as well. 
There's a subreddit that my wife checks from time to time called Men Writing Women. And all it does is make fun of passages in books uh, that are from a female point of view, but they're so obviously written by a man who has no idea. It's like, have you ever met a woman in your life? (laughs) I don't know. I I suspect women are a little more discriminating on that sort of thing. Because I don't know if there's an inverted, like, women writing men subreddit where men are making fun of women writing male characters. Uh, perhaps it's something uh, to check and see if it exists, but that is the, t- the tactic if you're unsure, right? If you're like, gosh, I don't know if I got this point of view right. Just have a woman read it or just have a man read it and, and do the sign of the crossover. <laughs> be like, yeah, you, you got this. It's it's working. Because once you figure it out, it, it's, I think it's easier as your writing is more established as you write some more stories. But when you're first writing, well, that's actually one of the big challenges for somebody who's just getting started writing any kind of point of view, like putting creating a fictional character and putting their head inside that fictional head and having it be different from their original head is is one of the big kind of obstacles to overcome. It's kind of like learning how to play one of the chords on the guitar. It's like every writer's got to figure it out, and it's a it's a trick to do. It is. It's a lot like being an actor, I would think. You know, you have to put on this different persona, yet at the same time, you have to bring your own authentic um, experiences and emotions to the character as well to make it real. So do you recommend that writers do improv classes to help them get in their characters' heads? If it works, go for it. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. but. <laughs> All right, Karen Wittemeyer, where can people find out more about you? My website, KarenWittemeyer.com. You can find out about me. You can sign up for my newsletter and learn all about my books. Also, I have a Facebook group called The Posse. Just search for The Posse. You'll find it. Um, it's a group of fans, and we just talk about bookish stuff. And sometimes I'll have my uh, my I, people from my group will help me brainstorm character ideas. They'll help me look at plots. Um, so this is kind of like my first level of, of beta influencers. They get to help me design sometimes my characters and stories. And do you have any uh, final tips or encouragement for somebody who's struggling with writing compelling characters and they're, they're listening to this episode looking for hope? What What would you tell them? Just keep after it. And one of the best things that I have done is to read. Read books that do it well. So find books that you really feel like as a reader, you are immersed, you are invested in that character. And enjoy the read and then go back and analyze and figure out what the author did. And that will help you figure out what you need to do with your own writing. So let's let's what's your book of all the books you've written? What's the one that you feel like you did deep point of view best? Right? If somebody wants to read a book and, and they're intrigued, they're like, okay, I want to give this a shot. What what's the one of your books? You only get to recommend one. Which one would you recommend? That is so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Which child do you like the best? Um, let's see. I'm gonna throw out um, more than words can say. Because even as the title says, it's more than the words. It's the emotion that's going on behind it. Now, this one, I have a lot of, of humor as well as um, uh, characters that are playing off of each other from two very different backgrounds. Um, so I'll throw that one out there as my recommendation. Okay. And we will have a link to More Than Words Can Say if you want to read a deep point of view book. Uh, this is one that's a great one to start on and i just pulled it up on amazon it's got 550 ratings with an average review of five stars or 4.8 so it's a very well received uh, by other readers so i haven't read it but i am 
intrigued. And our sponsor today is the Christian Writers Market Guide. If you're looking for help with your career, maybe you need an editor to help you with deep point of view. Maybe you're looking for an agent or you're wondering what publishing houses publish the kind of book that you are writing. The Christian Writers Market Guide has all of that information. You can sort publishing houses by the kind of authors they work with and so much more. And you can find out more at christianwritersmarketguide.com. Karen Wittemeyer, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.